The coronavirus has now caused deaths outside of China. Subsequently, ever-increasing numbers of persons have been quarantined in hospitals, holding camps, conference centers, and most recently, even on a luxury cruise ship. The World Health Organization has declared the coronavirus a global emergency. But could this virus become a pandemic? And if so, how should Americans handle such a threat? What should Americans do? I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. On my life, watching America. On my life, it's panic in America. On September 19, 2019, Watching America considered the subject of ancient plagues re-emerging and of new plagues potentially devastating American populations by mass numbers. The matter seemed safely remote, but now on this seventh day of February in 2020, the matter seems less hypothetical as the Center for Disease Control has quarantined nearly 200 Americans who have been evacuated from parts of China because of the deadly coronavirus. With no cure known, some airlines have refused to endanger their crews and passengers by canceling flights to cities in China. Moreover, nations have closed some ports of entry. Now, as in September of last year, we turn our attention to expert and author Richard Preston for his professional insight to what some believe may become a major pandemic. So with new content and reasserted former warnings, we bring you on Watching America, Richard Preston. Dr. Richard Preston writes for The New Yorker and independently for himself and significantly a broad audience of millions. He is also the author of best-selling books on such topics as infectious diseases and bioterrorism, the latest of which is Crisis in the Red Zone. He has been with us before, so we wanted to invite him back again, specifically by beginning to consider the outbreak of the coronavirus. Welcome back, Richard Preston. Nice to be with you, Alan. Well, as I speak to you at this moment, I can go to the grocery store and I can see various persons with masks on. I can lecture before a hall of students and I see various persons with masks on. Um, we have airlines that are no longer flying to various cities in uh, Asia. Uh, we also have uh, people who are voluntarily uh, putting themselves in quarantine. But also for the first time in 50 years, we also have the Center for Disease Control providing facilities uh, for persons intentionally to be put in quarantine. I must ask you, what do you make of this situation now with the coronavirus? Well, it's fascinating and a little bit disturbing. Uh, I should say first that the coronavirus is uh, another one of these emerging viruses. It's a virus that comes out of nature and makes a cross-species jump and gets into the human species. It gets into us. 
from some natural creature. Uh, the coronavirus is uh, a bat virus. Now, originally, how did it get into humans? Well, we think that uh, in Wuhan, China, at a meat market there, uh, somehow or other, a few particles of this virus went from one bat into one animal. That animal might have been a civet cat or a badger. The animal was being held at the market alive to be sold for food. Uh, the virus probably spread among the animals in the market that were being held there. And then at some point, it made a jump into one human being. So this entire possible global pandemic started with just a few particles of virus and one person. And it went on from there. How do you think it's being handled? Uh, I ask this on two fronts. One, medical, and the other one in relation to uh, public policy. Uh, China officials, Chinese officials have declared that they, they think that it's being um, blown out of proportion or words to that effect, albeit they have to construct their own hospital, I might add, to accommodate the, the burgeoning population um, that is now coming down with the symptoms of coronavirus. Um, and so we seem to be getting mixed messages out of China. It's like, oh, don't worry, but we have to build our own special hospitals. And at the same time, we seem to be getting um, mixed signals, perhaps, from our own CDC. What do you make of the circumstance? Well, I think we have to look at the virus itself, its characteristics, and what we know about it. I think one of the problems is that we don't know enough. Uh, there are some important unanswered questions about the virus. But it looks like the Chinese government botched the initial response. They tried to cover it up, which is often kind of typical in outbreaks of something new. But then, um, you know, the local population got really frightened, uh, and with good reason. And the gov Chinese government now has clamped down. Uh, they're building hospitals as fast as they can. But what exactly how dangerous is this coronavirus, the Wuhan virus, it's informally called? Uh, well, um, it looks like if you catch it, there are a range of degrees of severity or symptoms. In many people, the disease may be something like a very bad cold or a flu. Uh, and in other people, a much smaller percentage of people, um, it could be an extremely severe or fatal illness, a fatal pneumonia, which basically your lungs flew up with, fill up with fluid and you die. But uh, what, is the, what is the case fatality rate, the death rate? Well, we don't know. Uh, it may be as low as a half of 1% who catch this virus actually die of it. Uh, the death rate may be a little higher than that. We just don't know. And the other still really unanswered question is how contagious is it? If you're around somebody who has the coronavirus, how likely are you to catch it and how will you catch it? Well, it looks like it's um, a wet virus. Uh, it looks like it's transmitted when a person coughs, a wet cough, and tiny microscopic droplets of fluid could fly through the air, land on you, uh, particularly get into your eyes, or it can get on your hands. And then if you touch an eyelid, for example, it might transmit to you that way. Um, but we just don't know how contagious it is. Well, the eyes thing I that you just mentioned makes masks superfluous, doesn't it? Well, actually, the uh, the data shows so far that the mask, if you have the right kind of breathing mask, it can cut down your chances of being infected. But the right kind of breathing mask is one that's used in hospitals, and it's called an N95. 
mask. Those have become extremely difficult to obtain, even here in the United States. Do they cover the eyes, though? I mean, you you were saying that... No, they don't. Okay, so the eyes are vulnerable, but uh, in nearly all the masks that we see, there's no eye coverage, correct? That's a great question. Um, I think that medical people who are around anything infectious like that will be wearing um, an N95 mask, and they'll be wearing eye shields covering over their eyes, Ah, also a covering on the head. But... um, It's really, at this point, the virus really is not in the United States, and it's not necessary for people to cover up for that virus. The other thing that that, that medical people do around infectious patients, of course, is they wear gloves. They wear latex or nitrile gloves. So that would be, you know, if worse comes to worse, and if the virus does really become widespread in the United States, let's hope it doesn't, um, you know, you can protect yourself with uh, these very common medical supplies. So are you surprised by this? I mean, it, I would think not, based on prior conversations and interviews I've heard and had with you and read, reading your book. This this is a, uh, a, a no-brainer for you, isn't it not? I'm totally unsurprised. Uh, I and any number of virus experts have been predicting and monitoring this kind of event for decades. Uh, What is happening here is, in in one sense, you might call it the revenge of nature. Um, As humans move into ecosystems, as ecosystems become disturbed and fragmented by human, human contact, and as humans increasingly get packed into these giant super cities with crowded human beings and populations of up to 20 million plus people living close to one another. Uh, The conditions for a virus moving out of nature and getting into humans become better and better. And if you think, and there have been a lot of these, these emergences, these viruses coming out of nature. One of them, of course, was the great Ebola outbreak of 2014. But if you think about Um, what a human being is, from the point of view of a virus, um, the human species is nothing but an enormous pile of meat, and it doesn't have any immunity to these new viruses. I must ask you, if the situation gets worse, gets dire, what would be your recommendation for my listeners? How should we behave? What should we do? What would be the most logical thing to do? Well, I don't myself believe that the coronavirus is going to become dire. Uh, I think that if by any chance it does become a global pandemic, that is, if it goes everywhere, um, it's going to be very likely like a bad flu season. Uh, Nothing to really get wildly frightened about. For example, in 2017 and 2018, it was a bad flu season. I'm talking about ordinary common seasonal flu. And in that year, 61,000 Americans died of flu. Uh, But there was simply no panic in the United States. Uh, If 61,000 people died of the coronavirus, you can better believe that people will be really, really scared. But it's all a matter of perspective. Uh, I think that, uh, and I'm not talking about the coronavirus now, Uh, I'm talking in general about perhaps something worse than a coronavirus, uh, because the coronavirus is is only 
uh, a step in a natural process. It's just the natural process that has been occurring and will occur again for sure. Viruses coming out of nature. And the real worry is one that would be even more infectious than this coronavirus, impossible to treat and with a very high fatality rate. If a virus like that was going around, I think the thing for people to do would, you know, to keep themselves safe is that, first of all, hospitals would become the last place anybody would want to go because that's where all the sick people are. And so just as in the outbreak of Ebola in Africa in 2014, people are just going to care for their loved ones at home. And if you're going to do that in the presence of a dangerous infectious organism, you want to have those things I mentioned, rubber gloves, some sort of a mask over your face, something to cover your eyes, and be sure that you wash yourself thoroughly um, and disinfect surfaces that might be contaminated. These are just basic medical precautions, but they can go a long way toward keeping us safe. One of the virus experts I know, um, Dr. Pardis Sabeti at Harvard, is herself concerned about the unestimable possibility, that is to say, we don't know what the chances are, of something really bad getting loose in our society. I mean, a really bad emerging virus, uh, probably of a type we've never seen before. Um, In a situation like that, it would make sense to put away a supply of food, simple canned food, like canned tuna fish and stuff, that might last you and your loved ones for about a couple of weeks because nobody in, in a time like that would want to be going to the supermarket. And any kinds of medicines that you might need, prescription medicines or medical supplies, just to, t- to carry a family through a couple of weeks um, in a safe location at home so that they don't have to go out into the world during a time of plague. And I would you know, remind everybody, remind our listeners that Our ancestors from time immemorial have been dealing with outbreaks of plague. For example, in Philadelphia in the 1800s, there were regular outbreaks of yellow fever during the summertime, and it was really, really bad. Lots of people would die of yellow fever, and anybody who could would just leave the city of Philadelphia or the other cities where yellow fever plague was raging. Uh, And so... I guess I'm not talking about the end of the world. This is not a doomsday scenario because, after all, our ancestors built this incredible nation, the United States of America, uh, in the presence of horrendous infectious diseases that we now can deal with and cure. Um, But, you know, the diseases didn't stop our dreams, it didn't stop our ambitions, and it didn't stop our happiness either. One final question. Um, before we go for a break. We're going to go for a break and then we'll come back with you. But let me just ask you, there are people who are apprehensive about flying. If you yourself, and perhaps you are, going to get on a flight in the next, oh, few days or a week or so, would you have any heightened awareness about possibly being susceptible to getting something that's going to make you very, very sick that is incredibly nefarious from a foreign continent? I wouldn't. I personally wouldn't be worried about that. I would go ahead and fly. Uh, Now, if I thought there might be people on board the plane who had come recently from China, uh, I would be concerned enough so that I would probably uh, arrange to go on another flight or I would wear um, one of those little masks just in case. But I wouldn't go overboard. Uh, And you won't see me showing up for a flight wearing a, a full biohazard suit.
You are listening to Watching America. We just heard Richard Preston's conversation with Dr. Alan Campbell about the new coronavirus. Up next, we hear a portion of their broad conversation recorded last fall about viruses and plagues, including the discovery of the Ebola virus. To hear that full discussion, visit whrv.org slash watching America. just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and I have the great pleasure of interviewing Richard Preston. He's the author of Crisis in the Red Zone. Exactly 216 miles from this studio where I speak, and more significantly, 21 miles from Washington, D.C., is the town of Reston, Virginia. And if one, as you know, journeys to Reston, Virginia, you can find the United States Army Medical Research Institute of infectious disease. Now, in the winter of 1989, the Institute received a shipment of non-human primate tissue, mainly from monkeys. They were African phyloviruses, and as I understand it, spurs or particles were found in lungs subsequently, which we came to know as Ebola, which has a 90% mortality rate. What happened next? Well, what happened was that the, uh, the monkey caretakers were taking care of these monkeys at the Reston Monkey House in Reston, Virginia. There were about 600 wild monkeys in the building that had been captured in the Philippines, as it turned out, and they were destined for scientific research at various labs around the United States. They were being held at this facility. Well, the, the animals began dying, and they had pretty horrifying symptoms. Some of them were bleeding from the openings of their bodies. Uh, and then crashing and dying very quickly. Crashing means basically going into shock, sudden shock, and then that's followed by a cardiac arrest. So um, uh, the head veterinarian sent some samples up to USAMRA, to the Army base, um, thinking that it was a virus that was harmless to humans. And a scientist there um, began making tests, and uh, he... Uh, while he was making these tests, he and a colleague of his um, took a whiff from a flask where the uh, unidentified virus was growing. They put the flask up to their noses and smelled. They were hoping to get the scent of a bacterium, mm. but they didn't smell anything at all. Viruses are not bacteria, and they don't produce any odor when they multiply. Uh, and these two guys had inadvertently exposed themselves to Ebola virus which had never been seen outside Africa. Uh, it was in the monkeys. So when the Army finally found out what, what this virus was, they went into high gear, and there was simply no precedent. Nobody in the U.S. government really knew what to do when this level four hot agent, as they call it, um, a lethal, incurable, untreatable virus that has a very high mortality rate, and is highly infectious in humans, um, suddenly appeared near the nation's capital. Uh, there really wasn't any precedent for it. Um, but the Army 
uh, made a series of what I think were correct decisions. They decided to um, seal off the monkey house. They alerted everybody, of course. Uh, and then they, you know, everybody in the U.S. government who had authority in this situation, they all knew about it. But the army um, took the lead in dealing with the monkeys. They sealed off the building, and then they went in with biohazard teams wearing spacesuits, full biological spacesuits. Um, and they then euthanized the monkeys. They put them to sleep and then took thousands of biological samples from these dead monkeys to try to determine what this virus exactly was and exactly how it was spreading among the monkeys. And there was some evidence that, in fact, it was spreading in the air, which makes it particularly frightening. And then the hot zone really detailed that narrative um, of these soldiers and what they did, and it also and the scientists. And then at the same time in that book, I picked up some of the earlier history of Ebola virus, like when it first appeared, and I wrote about what it does to humans. Now, you speak about trans-species jumps. Uh, in other words, a virus working as a parasite, it can uh, only exist by living off an organism, but they can change and transverse species. Is this a common occurrence, and this particular occurrence with Ebola a, a, a anomaly because it's so lethal? I mean, does this transference happen all the time, or is it rare? What a great question. Uh, it turns out that the trans-species jump, or the cross-species jump, when a virus moves from one type of host to another type of host, um, is as old as the hills and common. It's a, it's a standard, routine practice of viruses to change hosts, and they've been doing it since the dawn of life on this planet, literally as old as the hills. And if you think about what benefits a virus, uh, it's very beneficial to a virus to change species once in a while because species go extinct um, or species and habitats change over time. And so in order to survive over the long haul, viruses really do need to do this. They need to, they need to basically pick up roots and move to a new host. And right now on planet Earth, there are now close to 8 billion humans, and we are living more and more in crowded urban megacities, these giant cities where anywhere from 20 to 30 million people are congregated in a tight space, breathing one another's air, touching one another's bodies. And from the point of view of a virus, um, the human species represents nothing more or less than a gigantic pile of meat and potentially a new host. You have stated that out of the last 13 major outbreaks of infectious disease, 12, a dozen, have come from animals. Can we expect more? Yes. Yes. They typically, uh, the viruses typically come out of nature, out of wild animals or sometimes out of domesticated animals, more likely out of wild. So fluffy can and, potentially kill you? Yes, or that rat that lives in your basement, or if you happen to live in a tropical country, it could be that bat that lives in a tree near you, or it could be an insect parasite that lives on that bat. Bats have their own kinds of parasites. And one possibility is that Ebola virus comes from bats, but the bats catch it from some insect that lives on them. Uh, so to this day, uh, 
there is no firm proof as to where Ebola actually lives in the natural ecosystems of the planet, although bats are a prime suspect. Now, one might entertain the idea that there is imbued in humanity a self-preservation aspect in that we are told that a matter of exposure to many, well, nefarious agents actually eventually builds an immunity. Is that sometimes not true? Well, it certainly is not true for these so-called emerging viruses. What they are is these are the viruses that are coming out of the Earth's ecosystems and invading humans for the first time. And the problem for us is that these emerging viruses, uh, our immune systems have never encountered them before. And so we don't have any um, innate immunity to a virus like Ebola, which is emerging from nature. But there are many others as well. They have weird names, uh, Nipah, um, Raven, Marburg, Victoria, and so on and so forth. Um, and so as a consequence of this, because we don't have any immunity to them, they tend to be extremely lethal when they get into humans. And, you know, you basically, you can't depend on your immune system to protect you from one of these new viruses. Well, let's review. I know you're aware of all of these um, versions of plagues, but let's review them. I review them very, very quickly, and then I'd like to get your response concerning the future. Uh, in 541, we had the Justinian plague, which was basically brought by, um, well, sailors. Uh, it traveled from Africa to Europe. And because of rats on merchant ships, it infected people in Constantinople and killed 25 million. By 1347, we had a medieval breakout uh, from Italian sailors coming from Crimea. And it was known as the Black Plague that killed 50 million. 1629, we had the Italian Plague, uh, bubonic, and obviously a continuation of the, of the mishap and uh, extreme dis- death that had been experienced before. And then 1665, we had the Great Plague of London. And at that, 8,000 people died a week. Now, some of us remember Monty Python, bring out your dead, bring out your dead. (laughs) But it wasn't so funny because it was a real event. 1720, we go to Marseille, France, and we have uh, 100,000 dead, mainly from ships from the Middle East. Uh, And at that time, there was a need to quarantine. So they had quarantine walls. And incidentally, going back to London, I can tell you that there were red crosses, as you know, were placed on on homes where people were believed to be infected with the plague. And so to avoid quarantine, uh, they would put a red cross on the door of the persons that lived there. And then finally, we get to 1855, the Chinese province of Yunnan, And um, worldwide, ships going all over, and possibly they estimate that as many as 15 million people died up until about 1950. What are the next waves of this? Can it be anticipated? Can it be seen? Certainly, Ebola has been the scariest one on the horizon. And by the way, your book is terrifying um, in all the right ways, if I can say that, because it's sober, it's real, it, it can happen. Stephen King, you managed to terrorize Stephen King. That is no small feat. So with intrepidation and concern here, I ask you, what is the next phase? Well, this is a really interesting question. I also wanted to uh, mention that in your enumeration of major plagues, one of the greatest was the plague of Native American people in the New World um, when smallpox and measles wiped out millions Mm. of Native Americans um, and really facilitated the uh, settlement of the New World. 
So um, what, what's next? What does the future hold? Well, I think that the lessons of history um, still prevail. And I made a study, for example, of the availability of biosafety level four, so-called red zone hospital beds in New York City. This would be a hospital unit that is prepared to handle a patient with a level four virus lethal, incurable, highly infectious, and, uh, and also a hospital unit that has trained personnel, people who actually know how to handle a patient who is bleeding out with a virus like Ebola. Um, these patients are lethally infective to medical care professionals. So I made a study of the availability of so-called red zone beds in New York City. These are hospital beds where staff and technology is prepared to handle a highly dangerous, infected patient who has a level four virus, um, somebody who is bleeding out or coughing with a, a lethal hot agent. And it turns out that there are something like eight red zone beds in all of New York City. Wow. Uh, the greater New York area has a population of 20 million. Now, what if, uh, what if uh, a virus, not Ebola, but some other virus popped up in New York City, a level four hot agent, and let's just say maybe it's airborne, or maybe one of the ways it can travel is through people um, coughing or breathing. Uh, now, what would happen is uh, New York City has laid some plans for what to do in this event, but they're not there yet. How could they be, really? But what would happen is that hospitals would quickly fill up with extremely dangerous, infective patients. And the first people to become infected would be caregivers in the hospitals, nurses and staff and physicians. The hospitals would be unable to handle large numbers of patients. If 1,000 or 10,000 people in New York City had a level 4 virus and there were only eight beds for them, you can just imagine what would happen. First, people would be terrified to go to hospitals, um, which means that people would start dying at home in their apartments, being cared for by loved ones. And people would be dying on the streets. Um, you would see, you know, a person lying face down at Columbus Circle in New York City. Um, nobody would want to touch that person. That person would be dangerous as all get out. People would be leaving New York any way they could. Now, this is exactly what happened in West Africa during the Ebola outbreak. The hospitals became lethally dangerous. Large numbers of medical staff, including many physicians, died of Ebola. Everybody was afraid to go to the hospital. They began taking care of their loved ones at home. And then the virus was transmitting from one person to another inside families. People were dying in the streets. Well, let's 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 get specific because I I think it's necessary um, to give people a, a visceral understanding of of what this looks like. In the case of Ebola, you had what you've referred to as black blood uh, coming out of every orifice, practically from the mouth, dripping down the cheek, going down the the the, the throat. Black blood coming out of people's anuses. Um, people going mad, deranged. I mean, this does sound like science fiction, but the scary thing is it isn't. Now, with that happening and the first burgeoning of that, 
how would the media control it? This is one of the things that, you know, we always have, we've seen all these sci-fi movies, even from the 50s. We can't let this get out. If it gets out, we'll have mayhem and, and mania. But what's the policy? What do we do? Well, what do we do? No policy. There is no policy. And I, yeah, and I, think, and I think, in fact, in a situation like this, it's very, very important for the media to be on the job and reporting accurately on what's happening because people, otherwise people will be depending on rumors and hysteria. Um, so factual reporting is really important. There's always been a strain in the media of skepticism, and this is a healthy thing. It's a really good thing. Uh, but there's been a good deal of skepticism about exactly how dangerous Ebola really is. And in fact, um, that line on Ebola was taken up by Ebola experts and public health experts around the world in the 1990s after my book, The Hot Zone, was published. And there came to be a consensus view, media and in the scientific community, that Ebola virus wasn't much of a problem and never would be. And there, were, there was almost magical thinking going on on the part of scientists. Whistling in the dark. They were whistling in the dark, and they were saying things like, oh, well, Ebola really can't spread among humans because it's too, it's too contagious, it's too hot, it kills people too fast, and so it can't really establish itself in humans. Well, that turned out to be completely wrong. And I like to say that um, nature often does whatever is necessary in order to make the most number of experts wrong. And nature pulled a really big surprise on everybody when Ebola broke out in West Africa, got into the cities, infected many thousands of people, and ultimately got to the United States, where 11 people had Ebola, um, and it got into a hospital in Dallas, Texas. Right. So um, that was a big wake-up call about the dangers, not only of Ebola, but really, I feel in a much larger sense, about the biological reality of the human species today. We are in a continuing process of adjustment to changing ecosystems on the planet. And one of the major effects of this is new kinds of viruses making trans-species jumps into humans and getting into urban areas. And it is a very big problem, and it's not going to go away. This is Watching America. We'll be right back. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and my guest is Richard Preston. He's the author of Crisis in the Red Zone, which, among other things, is a look at Ebola, the Ebola scare. He'd written about that long before it became a major issue uh, of recent memory. But he is a mind that anticipates, and what he anticipates is quite terrorizing and quite frightening. We are living in a time of very volatile politics and positions regarding immigration, legal or otherwise. One of the concerns which is always mentioned is uh, the transmigration of persons, bringing also potentially diseases. As is evidenced by my accent, I was not born in the United States and I came here as a legal immigrant. I had to have an alien card and what have you. But in order to attain that, I had to prove I was healthy. And I had to, um, you know, be examined and, and what have you. There are some who are saying, with good intentions, you know, oh, come on, people are suffering, let them into the country. However, this is something that struck me as curious. Some of my friends who had adhered to that position suddenly became very nervous when the likes of, 
of, uh, of Nancy Wrightball came back from abroad, having been with, uh, you know, I think it was Doctors Without Borders and also working with Samaritan's Purse, uh, Franklin Graham's organization. Uh, and Kent Brantley came back. The idea was, oh, my gosh, these people are coming in. They're going to infect us. Suddenly a different tune. What do you make of that? Well, that's a very interesting observation about human nature. Um, when something is a, we feel is a direct threat to us, um, our political opinions can suddenly shift. Um, I would say that Nancy Wrightball and Kent Brantley posed absolutely no danger to the North American population whatsoever. They were severely biocontained when they came into the United States. They were wearing spacesuits to protect everybody else. They were placed immediately in a high biocontainment hospital suite, you know, behind sealed glass doors mm-hmm. where nothing could get out. There was no problem there. Um, but in a larger sense, people fear um, infectious diseases coming from abroad inside human bodies. And there should be concern about that. Um, but the fact of the matter is that there's really nothing we can do about it other than close down our borders, which would cause um, a complete economic disaster worldwide if a country like the United States shut its borders down because of fear of an infectious disease. And so the, uh, the, real, the real world solution to this problem is to commit a little bit of money and manpower, or human power, I should say, to um, strengthening public health in foreign countries where these viruses originate. Well, how do you, how do you do that, though, Richard? I mean, uh, you know, I just wonder what the specific directives would be. I mean, how do you stop people from encountering, as you alluded to, bats and what have you? You can't. You can't possibly stop the viruses from trying to invade the human species. But what you can do is you can have the equivalent of a fire warden in a fire tower looking out over a forest for signs of smoke. Ah. You could have public health doctors who are educated and trained in how to spot an emerging disease and how to separate it out from common diseases like malaria, for example. And there are already some people like that, but many of them are from foreign countries. And what we really need is in, say... Africa, people who are trained to look for new infectious diseases, and then medical caregivers who, are, who have basic training in how to handle a patient who could be very infective. Um, it doesn't cost a lot of money. It just takes time and effort. Now, there was literally a miracle drug called ZMAP, Z-M-A-P-P, Z-M-A-P-P or for our Canadian-British friends, Z-M-A-P-P. And uh, it was the cure. And it even would begin to take effect in a shorter time as 90 minutes. Now, you had said a few moments ago that Kent Brantley was no threat to the United States, nor Nancy Wrightbowl. And I will accept that. But would they not have been if there hadn't been a Z-map? Well, it's a very interesting question. Um, I should give a little background on, on this drug, Z-map. So, The drug was developed by this small biotech company in San Diego, founded by a guy named Larry Zeitlin. Zeitlin was working for another biotech company that went bankrupt, and he began collecting unemployment. He used his unemployment checks to found this company, MapBio, that ultimately developed the drug that apparently cures Ebola in 90 minutes. Um, The the drug itself, ZMAP, is still 
very much unproven and untested. There's a lot of debate about how effective it is. But in my view, at least, the drug is extremely effective in some or many individuals who, are, who have Ebola. In some cases, they used multiple, um, if you will, installments of the drug, right? Yes. Um, in fact, you need to have two or better three doses of the drug spaced several days apart. And the first dose worked on Kent Brantley, appeared to work on him in less than 90 minutes. Um, he was on the verge of death. He may have been actively dying. Um, he, was, uh, he was really crashing uh, with Ebola virus. When the drug was administered to him intravenously in uh, a saline solution, and after um, about 60 minutes, he sat up in bed. He had not been able to sit up in bed for days. Mm. Um, and then 90 minutes later, he got up out of bed and went into the bathroom, and he hadn't been able to move for days. Wow. Um, and then when he came out of the bathroom, he said that he felt noticeably better, and he looked better. And at that time, he had only received about 12% of the first dose of the three doses. So the drug, um, the drug was being dripped into him very slowly. So the drug appears to be just extremely powerful. Um, it looks like it basically killed every Ebola particle in his body. Uh, it's, an, it's a drug made of three different kinds of antibodies, which are proteins that circulate naturally in a person's bloodstream. And um, your immune system uses antibodies to, to stop, to block, and to kill any kind of invading microbes. These antibodies were just extremely effective against Ebola. Um, but then you have to have more than one dose of the drug because what happens is that even after every single particle of Ebola in your body has been killed, there are cells that are still infected with the virus, and they begin spitting out fresh copies of Ebola. And so you feel okay, but then a few days later, you're starting to get symptoms again. Um, so you take the drug again, and then the three doses apparently kill all the cells that are infected with Ebola. Now, um, as so an international uh, effort, Richard, um, was ZMAP or ZMAP provided liberally to the nations and points of origin? No, unfortunately, that was not possible because at the time that Brantley and Wrightball received the drug, there were only six doses, or rather six courses of the drug in the world. Wow. The drug had been incredibly difficult to manufacture, very slow, tricky process. Each course of the drug had a manufacturing cost of around $100,000, I think. And um, interestingly or tragically, one of those courses of the drug was sitting in a freezer at a camp being run by Doctors Without Borders in Sierra Leone, mm. where at that camp there was a, um, a prominent African physician and scientist named Humar Khan dying of Ebola. And uh, the, the managers of the Doctors Without Borders camp had a, a moral and ethical crisis about whether to offer the drug to Dr. Khan. Um, and ultimately, they didn't tell him about the existence of the drug in the freezer, which was 100 feet from his tent. Uh, and he succumbed to Ebola. Uh, the drug was then transferred to a facility being run by Samaritan's Purse, a charitable organization. And at Samaritan's Purse, there were two Americans who had Ebola. And their 
their uh, attending physician himself went through a tremendous ethical struggle about whether to administer the drug to his two American patients. And the problem uh, for the Doctors Without Borders people, the problem was that they were fearful that the drug would kill Dr. Khan. Um, and then uh, the local population would become infuriated, thinking that white people had made an experiment on a prominent African doctor mm. and had killed him. Mm-hmm. Um, even if the drug had no effect and he just died of, of naturally of Ebola, um, they feared that they would be blamed. Um, and then Doctors Without Borders also has this ethical stance whereby um, they call it distributive justice. And it means that nobody is privileged. Um, so um, a minister of government or a prominent doctor gets the same treatment as a homeless person or a baby. Um, and, uh, and so the, the the doctors at Doctors Without Borders didn't want to give the drug to Khan because that would privilege him. And so they made a decision not to give it to anybody. Um, and you can debate whether or not that was the right decision. Um, oh, yeah, I, I mean, it, what it does is it, it, it takes the whole philosophical thing of lifeboat, you know, who gets to remain on the boat and who gets thrown overboard to a very sobering and um, uh, given great reason for pause uh, example. I mean, uh, th- these kind of decisions must have gone on repeatedly. Well, indeed. And it, it tore apart Doctors Without Borders. And all the physicians involved in that decision, when Dr. Khan died, they were in trauma. And I had great difficulty getting any of them to interview with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was told that some of them can't even speak about it with their colleagues. And there was one physician involved who they told me that he, he simply he breaks down and he cries whenever he talks about what happened to Dr. Khan. He couldn't be interviewed. But I did end up interviewing um, a woman named Anya Voltz, who was the, uh, the manager of the camp. And she was very candid with me. Uh, I have great respect for her. And she went through all the, you know, the agony of that decision. And then in the end, she said, you know, it may well have been the wrong decision, but I feel it was the right one for the time what I knew. And then she burst into tears and she began crying. So anyway, um, and then the Americans ended up getting the drug where it was, um, it evidently saved their lives. ZMAP was an example of the future. These antibody drugs can be developed rather quickly, tested rather quickly, and they can be manufactured in large quantities if you have the right kind of manufacturing base. And so in the event of a, a global emergency, when, when some unknown level four virus is breaking out uh, and there doesn't seem to be any vaccine for it, no way to stop it, it would be in theory possible to develop these groundbreaking drugs that could really um, stop the virus in its tracks. You know, you could develop a drug like that in as little as a few months. Wow. So that could make a big difference worldwide in the, in the event of a, a global pandemic of a new virus. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and I have the great pleasure of interviewing Richard Preston. He's the author of Crisis in the Red Zone. One of the questions I want to ask you is in relation to biowarfare and bioterrorism. Uh, heaven forbid that uh, bad agents got their hands on this material and deliberately wanted to go into uh, downtown Manhattan or into uh, Union Station or in uh, Orlando at one of the theme parks or something 
You've already alluded to the fact that we really don't have sufficient biocontainment capabilities in this nation. You've spoken about the, the lack of positive pressure suits, which is what people wear for these biohazards. What would happen? What would happen, Richard, if that were to occur? Well, it's absolutely a concern. And what is extremely concerning is the fact that the old Soviet Union had a, a vigorous, robust biowarfare program where they developed these weapons and manufactured large quantities of bioweapons, including uh, allegedly tanks that held 20 tons of liquid weapons-grade smallpox virus. Mm. Now, um, <clears throat> you know, and unfortunately, that knowledge has not gone away. Mm. And in modern Russia, Vladimir Putin has flatly refused to share any of these military strains with the United States. They have all those strains in the, in the Russian laboratories, including um, an exceedingly hot strain of smallpox, which is potentially the most dangerous virus on the planet right now. Wow. Uh, it's called the Russia India One strain, and it was, it was apparently developed by the old Soviet military for inclusion in um, believe it or not, ICBM missiles that were targeted on cities in North America. Wow. So they had a delivery system. It's not just that they had the viruses, but they had weapons systems, including missiles, to actually deliver the virus to the air over an American city. Um, now, you know, some of those missile systems are very likely not in use. They're not usable anymore in modern Russia. But the knowledge is there. And unfortunately, the knowledge has also spread. Um, Russian biowarfare scientists left the Soviet Union after it broke up, and they, some of them vanished. They went out of sight. And they're likely in places like North Korea sharing their expertise. So the problem of biological weapons is very real. Certain governments around the world um, are evidently favoring biological weapons as potential um, weapons of mass destruction. And then the big question mark is, could a terrorist organization get its hands on a military-grade bioweapon? And could if they? so, what would it do? Could they? Well, they, you know, interestingly, they haven't so far. We would know if, they, if somebody released, you know, a weapons-grade smallpox or a genetically engineered virus um, that, that was engineered to the standards of a, a, a national laboratory, you know, a military operation, we would know. Uh, that hasn't happened. So my supposition is that the major terrorist organizations that have probably been trying to get their hands on bioweapons or manufacturing them, making them, you know, in small labs, but so far at least they haven't had a lot of success, which, or at least not obviously. Richard, even in the most horrific and disturbing of circumstances and situations, there is redemptive beauty that can be found. Before you leave, will you share your hope and your greatest takeaway on the positive side of all this threatening and sobering material that needs to be addressed? Well, I'm fundamentally optimistic about the human species and about our destiny. Um, and uh, we, in the end, we won. We prevailed against Ebola through our own strength of character, our own ability to work in teams, to support one another, and to love one another. This is how we get through crises like Ebola. Mm. And I would remind people that we have 
a lot of things going for us that viruses don't, including the capacity to love, the capacity to, to render care. And we have our scientific prowess as weapons against the virus. But, you know, I went to Sierra Leone just as the virus was dying down there in 2015. And I saw things that gave me hope. I was driving around in the countryside, and I came across three men who were planting cocoa trees, trees for making chocolate, ultimately. Mm. And these trees were all about six inches tall. And uh, these guys would not be able to harvest any cocoa from those trees for, what, 15 years, maybe? Yes. But they were, they were planting trees for their future. And, um, you know, our, our species has endured plagues in the past. Let's think about the Great Plague of London. But right. these plagues, yeah. while they've devastated, you know, people, um, they've never set us back forever. Um, and we have continued to, to do glorious things as people, and we will in the future. You've been listening to Watching America. My guest has been Richard Preston, the author of Crisis in the Red Zone. It is not an exploitive book. I've read it. It is a thoughtful, well-crafted book. I challenge anyone to read it and not come away feeling indebted to Richard Preston as an author. I want to thank you so much, Richard, for being on Watching America. And the next time you come out with something, please don't hesitate to call us. I avidly want to talk to you again. Well, thank you, Alan. It's been a pleasure being with you. Take care. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme tune is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer is Paul Bebo. Senior producer, Gina Gamboni. Executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Chief of content, Heather Mazzoni. And CEO, Bert Schmidt. I'm the series creator and host, yours truly, Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care. Blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.